what behavioral science basically says is we're not actually consciously aware of much of what drives our decision making. Mm. And behavioral mm. science seeks to understand what are the environmental factors that are influencing your decision making that you're not consciously aware of. What's really interesting about ChatGPT is the interaction model. Because of the conversational tone of ChatGPT, it feels more trustworthy. I've always believed that behavioral science is about a decade behind where data science is. I think what's going to happen is it's going to follow a pretty similar trajectory as data science, where you start to have um, behavioral scientists that sort of specialize in different areas. Hey there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Future Product. Today, my guest is Nate Andorsky. He's the founder at Patent 355, serial entrepreneur, author of Decoding the Why, and so much more. Nate, we have a lot to talk about, but to start with, would you mind telling us a little bit more about your background and, and how you got to this point in your career? Definitely. And uh, thank you for having me. I, my mom always said I had a face for radio, so it's great <laughs> to be on this podcast. Um, I, uh, you know, I, I've been an entrepreneur since I can remember. I had my first business in high school. I used to knock on people's doors and see if they had any junk laying around. I would sell it on eBay for them and take a cut of what it sold for. And oh, nice. started out selling junk, eventually sold cars on eBay. And that's when I realized the power of entrepreneurship. And mm -hmm. I specifically remember I actually sold a fair amount of cell phones. And I remember seeing the listings and noticing that different listings for the same phone would sell for different prices. And I noticed that mm. just depending on how the item was presented, it would go for more money. And I think I didn't know at the time, but that was my first understanding of the power of what I refer to now as behavioral science. Mm. Um, and then since then, launched and, and scaled a number of companies. I'm currently working on a company called Patent 355. Um, and here I am today. Very cool. Very cool. Let's uh, let's delve a little bit into kind of what you define as behavioral science, right? Um, I'm super interested in, in your view there. Yeah. So um, really, you know, when we build products or bring products to market or scale products, a lot of what we do or hopefully do is customer mm -hmm. research. Mm -hmm. And get insights into why people like things or what they'll use in the future. And what behavioral science basically says is we're not actually consciously aware of much of what drives our decision making. Mm. So when we ask people why they do the things they do, it's usually pretty inaccurate. And mm. behavioral science seeks to understand what are the environmental factors that are influencing your decision making that you're not consciously aware of. And I read a book, okay. God, like seven or eight years ago called Nudge. And if you're familiar with this space, it's like the book to read. Mm -hmm. It's not related to tech at all, but what was interesting is if you have experience building products, some of the key yeah. concepts you just know through trial and error. Right. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. I wonder if there's companies that are like really digging into this academic literature and integrating it into the way they think about building and bringing products to market. And I soon mm. found out there wasn't. <laughs> and that's what sent me on my own journey to figure out how to bridge that I gap. See. I see. Got you. Well, what would you chalk that up to? Kind of the uh, the the lack of of people in that space applying it to product development. Uh, how much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> as much as you get. <laughs> um, you know, I think that there's a lot. Um, there's a lot of gaps that exist between the applied or industry side and academic across mm -hmm. a lot of different disciplines. Some of it is because. Um, you have to reverse engineer a lot of the theories to get them to work, right? Mm -hmm. So when you're in academia, you have a hypothesis or an idea that you want to test, right? Like are people more likely to do something if 
they have a friend who's also doing that thing, right? Mm. In the business world, it's completely opposite. You're trying to optimize for a metric, increase revenue, right. decrease costs, et cetera. So you have two very different starting points. Mm-hmm. There's part of that. Um, and then the second part is you actually need a pretty r- wide array of skill sets to be mm-hmm. able to bridge that gap. And there's a lot of people that just either are very strong in the academic literature or very strong in the applied side, but don't typically have both. And then one of the biggest things is just um, propensity for understanding if something works or not. Like in academia, you can run a study and it can take, you know, months or even years. It's okay with that, right? Mm-hmm. In in the applied mm-hmm. side, if you're working at a company, like you got to move the needle really quickly. So it's just a balance of being true to the way that you should be looking at the research and implementing it, but also mm-hmm. making sure that your CEO at your company, she isn't saying, hey, listen, I can't wait six months for you to tell me if this is going to work or not. Right, right. I see. Got it. So it's interesting. I think it's kind of um, behavioral science is is a field that's working its way into a lot of different fields, right? Um, mm-hmm. So like behavioral economics as an example, right? I think that kind of putting these models of human behavior into the context of all these different applied fields is, is already starting to have a massive impact. Um, would you mind kind of laying out some of the core principles uh, that you kind of use to to guide you know behavioral decision making? Definitely. So I, I think that caveat: uh, everything is contextual, right? So if you mm-hmm. see something work in one instance, you can't necessarily copy and paste it and put it into another instance. It's going to work. I think a couple like key concepts here that we talk about is number one is when you're looking at an experience or customer journey, the sort of concept of removing friction and adding fuel is like a key concept. There's also um, the way that we view gains and losses. So loss aversion speaks to this idea that we actually view losses twice as great as subsequent gains, right? So if you're mm. walking down the street and you see $10 and you pick up that $10, right? if you lose $10 psychologically, it feels like a $20 loss, right? Mm. So that's also really interesting about approach decision-making, looking to minimize the downside versus optimize the upside. And then also... Um, norms, social norms, what other people are doing in many different ways is a really big influence on our behaviors. Mm-hmm. That, and then the biggest interesting, I think, concept is when you're looking to drive long-term behavior change, um, it's really hard for us to understand the potential benefit of taking an action that happens away in the future, right? So mm. you go and you say, I'm going to save money for retirement, Right. Right. Everyone says it's retirement's important. I need to make mm-hmm. sure I have money in the bank to retire. But we have a very difficult time really understanding the potential impact of taking that action, which is one of the reasons right. why it's hard for us to just be responsible with our money, no matter who you are. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. It makes sense. It's a uh, it's kind of a lot of the stuff that I heard in my kind of economics coursework aligns with this, right? That the risk mm-hmm. aversion, the kind of sunk cost and the kind of discounting based on how far in the future gains are, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So you, you wrote a book about this, Decoding the Why. How yes. do you see kind of these tenants being applied to improving product development? It gives you a whole nother playbook to think about what features or ideas that you want to build. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of what companies tend to do, and I've done it too, is what I call feature cloning, right? Mm-hmm. We need to build something. Let's see what all our competitors are doing. And we copy and paste that, but not really understanding the behavior that you want to drive. And mm-hmm. I'll give you a really perfect example. So think about retirement again, right? Yeah. Most apps that want you to save for retirement, the onboarding flow is pretty similar. You open up the account, you put in some information, they ask you about maybe your retirement goals. 
mm-hmm. right? How much money do you want to save? What are you saving for, et cetera? And then you start hopefully saving for retirement. Right. right. But if you understand this at a behavioral level, mm-hmm. you also understand that, okay, let's understand what the problem is. The problem and the reason that you can't save for retirement or you don't, mm-hmm. one of the reasons could be a, this concept of what we call the future self. When you think about your future self, you actually think about yourself in third person. Mm-hmm. Why is that important? Well, you view your future self as a complete stranger. So even mm. though you say you care about your future self, they're no different than somebody that randomly passes you on the street. Mm-hmm. If you see somebody on the street, do you actually care if they save for retirement? No, right? So now you understand, okay, like what's going on, right? right. So then the right. question becomes, how do we take your future self and bring it closer to your current self? And one of the interesting concepts, and this is actually a study that AARP did, is they showed an augmented reality version looking to save for retirement. They showed them what they would look like in 30 years. <laughs> so it would it would show you yourself at a little bit older. But what did that do? That it connected your current self to your future self. And when they mm. used this intervention, they saw uptake in retirement plans almost doubled. Right. Wow. And this is a prime example of if you went out to customers and you said, hey, listen, like what feature should we build? Like no one's going to be like, show me an augmented reality version of what I look right. like when I'm older because then I'm going to care more about myself. Right. Yeah. And this yeah. is the power of behavioral science. Right. Mm. Because it's insights that you're not going to get from your users or your customers, mm. but it's insights around what drives behavior. And all of a sudden it opens up this whole new way of thinking about the way that you build products and bring them to market. Interesting. I see. So it's it's almost going that step deeper beyond voice of the customer data, right? So exactly. Yeah, very interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. I see. So it's it's the the feature that they don't ask for that they that they really need. Yes. It's like um, there's a there's a famous Henry Ford quote which I actually posted on LinkedIn a couple months ago, and then someone called me out because they're like, Henry Ford never said that. Besides <laughs> the point, it's an interesting <laughs> quote. And the quote is, if I would have asked people what they wanted, they would have said mm. faster horses. Right. And that sums up exactly what it is that I'm talking about. Totally. I think um, a lot of these principles make a lot of sense in the context of current AI development, right? Because mm-hmm. we're very much at this place where AI builders are building for a market that doesn't yet fully exist, right? Right. The kind of writing what those needs are. Um, and so what advice would you have to, you know, somebody who's trying to build an AI if they're thinking through how do I anticipate Ooh. kind of the behavioral needs of tomorrow, Ooh. right? Yeah, I got a lot to unpack here. Um, and I've done a, a, a bit, I'm, I'm a big, I have a software engineering background, so I'm also a big okay. proponent of when there's new technology, just like digging into it and getting my hands dirty to kind of yeah. understand what this thing is. Mm-hmm. And I've done that with... Um, Open AI. So there's there's a couple key insights here. The first one is when a new technology is released, oftentimes what I see is companies will jump towards building a solution. Mm. And then you fall into the trap of a solution looking for a problem. So first and foremost, I would be very careful that you first understand the problem that you're solving, agnostic Mm -hmm. of the technology you use to solving such problem. That's the first thing. The second thing is there are actually instances where AI can backfire. And I'm not talking Mm. about the technology, but I'm talking about the user experience. And let me give you an example. So I was talking to a startup this past week. One of the challenges that they were having, it was um, giving people recommendations for different financial advisors they should follow. Mm. So the idea is there are financial advisors or investors that are really good at what they do, and they're going to give you recommendations of who you should follow so you can follow the way that they invest so you can invest Mm -hmm. smarter. This was all AI driven. And one of the things that we're having trouble is getting people to actually follow investors. Can you guess why? Mm. Why? 
labor illusion, the concept, it's something that you receive, there was work put into it behind the scenes, you mm. value it more. It's too automatic, right? Okay. If you're trying to build trust between two people, mm. if something feels too automatic, it doesn't feel trustworthy, right? So there are instances where if you don't understand the behavior that you're trying to drive and the engagement model that you're trying to create, mm -hmm. using AI that feels too automatic can actually backfire depending on mm. what the use case is, right? And this doesn't even have to be like I would, I would sort of reimagine that scenario that I gave you. You can still use yeah. AI behind the scenes, but imagine that you submit your information, right? Mm -hmm. And it says, thank you for submitting your information. Uh, we're currently working on recommendations of the profile specifically. And mm -hmm. then those recommendations are delivered an hour or an hour and a half later. But it's still AI driven, right? Mm -hmm. So that's a use case of like being really careful about what we call the – in data science, we've used the human in the loop sort of framing mm – -hmm the human in the loop model around these interaction models. That's the second thing. And then the third thing is, and we can dig into either one of these because I'm going to give you a yeah. lot. The third piece is um, what's really interesting about ChatGPT is the obviously AI that's behind it, but it's actually also the interaction model, right? Okay. There are very few models that exist in the web in terms of user experience where there's a true conversational model, right? right. And that, that changes the way that you view information, right? And when information is given to you via chat GPT or Google, mm -hmm. you can get the same information, but because of the conversational tone of chat GPT, I don't have any data to back this up. This is just my instinct. It feels more trustworthy than mm -hmm. what you get from Google because you almost feel like you're talking to a person right. versus looking into a system. Interesting. Uh, I, those are both very salient points. So, so expanding a little bit on on number two there, um, I think that's a huge problem that all of us building in the AI space are facing. Right? Is you're building something that is anticipated to solve a need faster, more efficiently, mm -hmm. and more concretely than before AI kind of came around. Right? But it still needs to be designed to garner trust. Right? So, yes. like you said, even if it can spit out an answer within a few seconds. That actually might not be, you know, ideal, despite it being faster, more efficient, more accurate, because the human on the other end doesn't have, you know, a chance to really buy in and, and feel like there is work going on behind the scenes. Right, right. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's not true in every single use case, but that, that's like one mm -hmm. of the common mishaps um, I see. The other, the other place where it's also interesting is understanding if I models that you're building are meant to replace or augment an existing end-to-end mm. -end service flow, right? So I'll give you an example. Yeah. Imagine that you are um, writing an annual report for a nonprofit, mm -hmm. right? When you write an annual report and publish a report, if, if I'm building an AI tool to, to help that process, that end-to-end -end yeah. process is pretty complex, right? You're a communications director. Mm -hmm. You're probably talking to your executive director. You're talking to your... There's so many different things going on. There's so many different people that you're talking to. There's so many different ways you need to draft this. The first thing I would do is just like literally map the end-to-end -end journey and understand what's mm -hmm. going on, right? And then understand where the biggest pain points are. And your AI doesn't necessarily need to create the report end-to-end, -end, but it might mm -hmm. actually be more effective if you can figure out like where are the places in that end-to-end -end journey that it can augment the experience. Like maybe it can I help see. capture notes from your team, right? right? Maybe it can help draft an outline. Maybe it mm -hmm. can help give you a first version of the draft that you're going to go back and edit, 
right? Absolutely. All of those things are really important because it dictates how the software will be constructed. Mm-hmm. So it actually works within people's workflows. Interesting. It's almost the concept of like a co-pilot versus an autopilot, right? The co-pilot. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, so the 100%. Would you say that it's easier to kind of garner trust than if you're augmenting as opposed to replacing? Um, I think so. I think also in those instances, and this is another like prime example, I think AI mm-hmm. or really any technology, people kind of just jump to building the technology. They don't mm-hmm. deeply understand the problem, the use case, right? But if, if, if I'm a user of a piece of software, the one example that I just gave you, and it actually fits into my workflow, I have this sense it's like, okay, people actually really understand who I am and what my needs are, right? They're not just throwing technology at me because this actually, oh, interesting. It actually lists, it actually asked me to put in all of the emails of the other folks at my nonprofit that are going to want to add comments to the end report. Like they actually Mm -hmm. understand what's going on in my world. I see. I see. Interesting. So pivoting slightly, you mentioned kind of that, that itch to just jump straight to development, right? And You've talked about how you can tell if a company is struggling just purely based upon the number of new product features and yes. their funding round. Would you mind yes. talking about kind of the calculus behind that? Yeah. So like the entrepreneurial journey is you come up with an idea. Hopefully you've identified a problem, but a lot of mm-hmm. times you just sort of have this idea, right? And you put it out there and sometimes you put it out there and it just like catches wildfire and it takes off, right? But most of the time what happens is you put it out there and you're, you're like the growth that you had in mind is not happening, Right. And there's this tendency to go um, wide with your product Mm. feature set, right? Because you think the more features that I build, the more chances that I have somebody is going to use a feature and the product will catch, right? Mm -hmm. But what inevitably happens is you keep running in circles. What you should do is you should find the biggest pain Mm -hmm. that is happening and build like one or two key features and go very narrow and deep. Right. Mm. And usually you don't expand your product in terms of your feature set, but also your ICPs as you get into later funding rounds, because that also is a signal of growth. Right. Right. You're being your C round. Right. So if there's a company that is in your pre seed or sometimes even series A Mm -hmm. that has a team as a bloated product, it's Mm -hmm. a pretty clear signal to me that they haven't found product market fit because they're continuing to Mm. build features, hoping something's going to catch. Right. If you I came see. to me and you're like, hey, listen, I'm going to raise a Series A. I'm doing a couple million in revenue and I have like mm-hmm. one core feature. I'm like, great. Like, you know yeah. what you're building. You know what your use case is. You know who your ICP is. Right. Right. I see. So for for those who might be confused um, because maybe they're they're trying to build around like a land and expand type of offering, let's say. Yes. What, what are kind of the concretes to to say, hey, you know what? We're starting to creep outside of scope here. We're uh, we're moving in the wrong direction. Um, usually, I will say if you don't have like a repeatable, scalable sales motion, mm-hmm. right? Like if I said to you, listen, if I gave you, you know, if I gave you fifty thousand mm-hmm. dollars, you you can't actually show me a clear path to how that fifty thousand dollars is going to turn into users. Right, like they don't actually know who they're selling to. They're not very specific about their ICP. Okay, yeah. that's the first indication. Like we sell to executive directors of what of mm-hmm. nonprofits, of what type of nonprofit, what size, what industry, like all those different types of things. Right. Yeah. The second thing is they can't clearly articulate the core problem that they're solving. Right. What mm-hmm. problem are you solving? We're, we're getting we're helping people become healthier. Okay, right. that's a very big abstract problem. 
How are you getting people to come healthier? Well, we help them create training plans, find a coach, uh, eat healthy, all these things. I'm like, whoa, that is a like that's a lot. <laughs> like yeah. Yeah. if you were a massive healthcare company, sure, but like you're a startup, mm-hmm. right? Like right. you need to be focused, right? So um, not clear articulation of ICP, mm-hmm. trying to solve too many problems, and right. the problems aren't clearly defined. I see. I see. Very interesting. So you would say kind of having a repeatable, scalable sales motion that's locked yes. into this one piece of core value. That's when you know, hey, you know what? We're, we're getting a little more mature. Maybe it's funding around BC, right? Right. And now we can kind of expand out a little bit. Exactly. Exactly. I see. I see. Got it. Very interesting. So pivoting slightly to your current venture, Patent 355. Yes. Uh, or is it 355? Uh, you know what? I don't know. I mean, it's I, I haven't like settled on a way that I pronounce it. So patent cool. three five five or three fifty five works for me. So awesome personal preference then. <laughs> yeah. So you had a pretty um pretty powerful story behind it. Um, that you laid out kind of on your about page there. Um, mm-hmm. would would you mind kind of you know telling us what led you to start patent three five five? Um, and and the story. Yeah, definitely. So um, I've had this conversation with a lot of people around is entrepreneurship genetic or is it environmental, mm. right? Sort of nature versus nurture. There's there's no answer to that. But um, I do have on my mother's side a pretty clear lineage of what I would refer to as the entrepreneurial gene. Mm. My grandfather was uh, raised in Vienna and he actually immigrated or emigrated, I don't know what the correct term is, over to the US when he was a teenager. Okay. Um, didn't have anything more than a high school education. He was he was an inventor, and he went on to become a VP at Clairol and a number of other companies, and was the inventor or co-inventor on over I think about a hundred patents throughout his career. Wow! He was a very curious person, and mm-hmm. the company Patent Three Five Five pays homage to him and his entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, the last patent that he filed in 1984 ends in three five five. So oh, cool. the the name, of the ethos of the company pays homage to him and his entrepreneurial spirit. But mm-hmm. the reason that it's called Patent Three Five Five is the idea is that myself and the company is carrying forward his sense of curiosity mm-hmm. of how he moved through the world, and it's something mm-hmm. that I've always had as long as I can remember. And I think that's really what drives me as an entrepreneur because I realized when I was in my 20s, it's actually not money. (laughs) So I was like, what is it? Um, (laughs) It's just a sense of curiosity, like just a sense of like, how do things work and how do things fit together and how do very Mm -hmm. messy situations intersect in this puzzle-like scenario? Absolutely. No, I love that. So w- would you mind uh, kind of talking through specifically what you, what you do at Patent 355 sure. and, and how that bears out? Yeah. So we, um, we're a product design studio at our core, right? So we work with both early stage companies, helping them either bring new products to market or mm-hmm. refine products that are already in market. Um, and we also work with large corporations on what I would deem as sort of new ventures, right? So if gotcha. you're Visa, for example, and you're exploring launching a new product, what does that actually look like? Mm. Our methodology is really rooted in behavioral science, which is understanding what drives human decision-making. Right. And that perpetuates itself in the way that we do our research, but mm. also design and bring products to market. I see. Got you. Got you. So. Would you mind defining a little bit more kind of like the uh, the behavioral science inputs that, that go into that that development and design process? Yeah. So one of the ways that we integrate behavioral science is in the, the research that we do, 
right? So if we're doing qualitative research and we're doing some research about a new um, like savings app, for example, we'll use the behavioral science to help us understand the customer insight. So if we're doing research and I ask you, you know, do you want to save environment? And you say yes. And then I ask you, how much money do you want to save every single month? And you tell me X amount of dollars. I can actually tie that back to the academic literature and tell you why that is essentially a lie. <laughs> so we're helping to sort of, what does the qualitative and quantitative data say? Uh, but why does it say those types of things, right? And then what that does is it helps us come up with feature ideas and product ideas. So the augmented reality savings app that I spoke about earlier, that could be a prime example of some new features or some able to come up with because of the behavioral science and then we'll build those and test those and see if they actually work etc okay got it got it very cool so it's kind of like um you're building the behavioral science into the the very process of how you exactly. answer those core questions I yeah see. it's kind I of see. like it's another layer you know you, i'm sure you hear of like we use design thinking and we use human-centered design mm -hmm. it's another tool in our toolbox we all use all those things too but it's another tool in our toolbox to help inform mm -hmm. the the typical iterative lean startup process that most companies go through. Very cool. And can I ask, have you worked with any AI products yet? Um, I have worked with, I mean, there's a couple different levels. One yeah. is just like yeah. using an AI product. Um, mm -hmm. The other mm -hmm. is looking to integrate AI into the products that we build. And I've done, I've done both of those. Very cool. Would you mind talking about the latter a little bit, just kind of how you've kind of bridged the gap between the the behavioral science piece and and building in the AI space, right? Because I think there is there are a lot of startups that are coming out that are trying to that are trying to solve a problem, like you said, right? Sure. But they don't necessarily uh, know that it's it's the right problem. They don't know that you know they're solving it according to you know what the customer actually needs, as opposed to what they're able to verbalize. Yeah. So like on the interaction side, what I would deem as like the user experience, you know, one of the interesting use cases is because of the way that um, AI is available now, there's a lot of ability to create these chat interfaces, mm. right? In a way that there wasn't before. And so for example, you can imagine one of the powerful things about behavioral science is around this idea of framing, right? Mm. And Let's say, for example, that you know that there's a certain demographic or a certain persona within your app that responds better to, to certain types of messages. Mm. And I'll give you a prime example. Like this is a very like basic use case, right? Yeah. But you could begin to segment out your, your user base. But one of the ways that you could do it is imagine that you created – you have that savings app that I was talking about before, mm -hmm. right? And let's say there's some sort of text interface, you know, previously you might say, hey, would you like, you know, would you like to set up your, your savings account? Okay, but we know going back to loss aversion, one of the ways that you could potentially frame this is mm -hmm. um, there's been an account created for you, you know, mm -hmm. here to claim your account, right? Using loss aversion that already exists, I right? I and what these models allow us to do is segment users into different buckets, but also mm -hmm. begin to send um, very customized behaviorally informed messages to those different segments in a way that you could kind of do before, but like right. not at the scale or the ease of use that you could before. Very cool. Very cool. So for somebody who maybe, you know, is a, is a first time founder is working on, on their product, whether it be AI or not, what are, you know, where would you start if, if you were in that position with, because obviously these types of models are going to be increasingly relevant and, and making decisions in product development based on behavioral models is going to be 
I think really the next step kind of in product development. Um, yeah. How would you kind of stay ahead of the curve there? What I would do, and I'm, I'm a huge proponent of this, and I always say it, no one would ever hire me to be their lead engineer on their team because I would just mm. destroy the code base. But <laughs> I can I can take an idea and I can launch a first iteration of a product, mm. right? Mm-hmm. So what I always do with these types of new technologies that come out is I just get my hands dirty, right? Yeah. Like it's really hard, I think, to understand what you can and can't do unless you've played around with the technology. So for example, right. what I did was um, I tried to produce a decent amount of content, mm-hmm. right? Um, on LinkedIn and and blogs and such. And like like everybody else was like, oh, I wonder if this thing can help me produce content, right? So the first yeah. thing I did, I just went to chat GPT, right? Like, it was like step one. I was like, okay, this is like, okay, but it's not great. Right. And then after a couple of months, like I'm sounding like everybody else, like it's pretty easy to identify when chat GPT wrote something. Right, right. But I was like, okay, I have a, I have a massive book, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was like, I wonder if I can train open AI, which is basically training a large language model on my right. book, right? So mm. I spun up Python, I started to write a script and I basically took... Um, I took the contents of the book mm-hmm. and I trained the model on my book. And then uh-huh. I started to do like prompt engineering, right? Which yeah. is this whole like new way of thinking of it's actually really important the way that you prompt the model to get mm-hmm. the answers that you want. I started just to play around with it. I was like, can I like prompt open AI based on the content of my book to create mm-hmm. a LinkedIn post that like kind of sounds like me, right? Yeah. And I just started going through that. And the answer is I never got to a place where I could, but I started mm-hmm. to understand what this thing can't do and it can't do in the limitations. So if I'm talking right. to a startup or I'm talking to a client or a company and they ask me something that's not surface level, like I can answer it because I've tried it before or I know what's possible with it that right. I can bring in the right folks to build those types of things. I see. Man, that, that's a that's a very unique use case. I love that, right? Um, it's, it's a common theme on this podcast is that kind of the value of a product that you're able to build around AI or even just, you know, an internal feature really does come down to the data that you train it on. Um, mm-hmm. I'm interested, though, to hear kind of why you think it, it didn't work, um, why it, it wasn't able to really replicate your voice in a way that was, you know, meaningful and, and not redundant. My my guess is um, there just wasn't enough training data, mm-hmm. right? So the next step I would have taken with that is I would have started to train the model on my previous LinkedIn posts and blog posts and get a lot better around the prompt engineering piece mm-hmm. of it, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's where a lot of the value is in terms of just the industries that are looking to adopt this. It's not actually in the, like using the model, like everyone can tap into open AI. And I know mm-hmm. Google has something I haven't, it's your ability to train the model and provide data. That's right. what makes it valuable totally. and get the type of information out of it, right? And that's mm-hmm. where I think you're going to see a lot of companies that are able to build somewhat of a moat like when chat GPT first came out, everyone was like, oh my God. And then, I mean, it literally, if you want to, if you want to integrate chat GPT kind of like as is into your product, like mm-hmm. it takes like a couple hours, like it's not yeah. like, right. So yeah. like everyone's like now doing it. It's like having a Google mm-hmm. search on your website, right? Exactly. So the power is really in the ability to, to train the model on your own proprietary data. Mm, I see. That makes sense. It makes sense. So having an interesting data set to begin with is kind of going to be a crucial aspect there, right? Right. And, ha- and understanding how to how to leverage it, right? Right. No, absolutely. So so kind of bridging the gap there, um, you are a serial founder, right? You, you founded several companies in your history? Yes. Um, let's, not let's all successful, but I have. <laughs> okay. <laughs> let's get into it. Um, what do you, uh, what is the difference in, in your direct experience between a successful venture and an unsuccessful one? I think it depends on how do you define a successful venture? 
Well, I'll turn that back around. How do you define a successful venture? Um, I mean, there's a couple different ways, right? So one is the typical venture back scenario, mm-hmm. right? And like, those are just different types of companies. And I think yeah. that if you're going to take venture money, you've got to understand why you're taking it and what it's for. And right. I'm, I'm part of Angel Squad, which is a, an angel mm-hmm. company that's attached to Hustle Fund. And I've been on a couple pitch calls. And what's interesting is a lot of the ways that VCs look at opportunities is mm-hmm. not necessarily like, is this going to work? Mm-hmm. It's if this does work, how big can it be? Right. So you can have a company that's actually doing pretty well and mm-hmm. is profitable and is growing, but VCs might pass on it because they might say, right. listen, like this thing will never be big enough to provide the returns that we need. Right. For me, success is honestly, and this is a little counterintuitive to the way the hustle culture is. Mm-hmm. I'm building Patent 355 in my companies now to help support the lifestyle that I want. And that means like right. I want to be able to not work weekends if I don't have to. I want to be able to not mm. work after six. And because of that, like yeah. I've been very intentional. It's like I don't have any plans to raise money because, mm. you know, if I take two weeks off, I don't want anyone being like, why aren't you working? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it depends on like, what do you want out of the company mm. that defines the success for you and then understand how to build the company as such? Right on. So, uh, yeah, it's kind of the difference between a cash flow business and one that's backed by venture. Right. And I think that's, and correct me yeah. if I'm wrong here, but largely a function of the way that, you know, venture does investment is there's a large pool of investments and it's really just upside. Exactly. It's it's kind of like, you know, I'm going to throw money at a bunch of startups and if one mm-hmm. hits it because of the massive returns, it's going to return for the portfolio. And mm-hmm. that's good for VCs, but because you're one bet out of X number, mm-hmm. but if you're the entrepreneur, <laughs> like right. your bet is your startup, right? Right, right. You know, right. and like... This is easier said than done, but I think that if you have a if you have a company like let's just say you have a SaaS product, right? Mm-hmm. And you know if you don't raise money and you get to a million ARR and you can sell that for three, four, maybe five x, like yeah. that's a lot of money to take home, right? Totally. To take home the same amount of money for this if mm-hmm. you raise because you get diluted through the funding rounds, like you got to right. build a much bigger company to take home the same amount of money. Again, mm-hmm. like like some monies do actually need venture capital from the get go, just right capital intensive it is but like there are different ways to kind of think through this and depending on what it is that you want to get out of it right so mm. very interesting i i and cor- correct me if i'm wrong but i get the sense that maybe your your view on this has matured through different ventures is, is that the case yeah i mean i think when i was in my 20s i wanted a venture back company because like i yeah. honestly i wouldn't say at the time but now looking back it was i wouldn't just tell a lot of people and get written up in tank crunch that I mm-hmm. raised $100 million, right? But like, right. I've talked to a lot of founders who've raised venture capital and it's like, it caused a lot of stress, mm-hmm. which is like fine for some people if that's what you want. But, yeah. um, you know, I, I think it just depends on, you know, what you, I think it's such a, it's a big sign. It's not as bad as it 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 has been in the past, but this, this, um, this sign and this indication of like success when you raise money, which like mm-hmm. it is, but like people are giving you money for future potential. Like, right. It, like right. it's a it's a liability. Someone's like, "Hey, here's exactly. ten million dollars. You come yeah. back to me when you turn it into a hundred million. Like, <laughs> oh, that's a, that's like a lot of pressure. <laughs> you for know? sure, like, for sure. No, totally. So, yeah, if, if, it's like sounds, if, so. If we were thinking about this on the individual basis, it would be like getting an article written up for taking out a giant loan, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. You know. That's a you great know, and point. They're, yeah. they're, they're, they're investing not in what you've done. They're investing in what mm-hmm. you could be, right? So, right. Like, right. you know, I kind of liken it to, um, 
the NFL draft, right? Mm. Like I think I think if you get drafted in the first round in the mm-hmm. NFL, like that's gonna be like like scary, right? Yeah. Like you're getting like all you have is is the opportunity to to, to not live up to all the hype yeah. that's been given to you, right? <laughs> right. Like I'd rather go right. in like the seventh or eighth round. No one knows my name, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden, like it's all upside, right? Yeah. No, hundred percent. That's a great point. I uh, I think that also bears out in the market, right? Like if you look at all of these companies that that raised at these gigantic valuations, what a year ago, uh, two right. years ago, a lot of them are crunched now, right? They're they're overextended. Yeah. They're doing layoffs. W- would you say that that's largely because of kind of that raise big kind of model? I think part of it. I think a lot of it has to do just with like the money that's been floating around, and mm-hmm. um, I mean, some of it is more around financial stuff that I don't completely yeah. understand of like the bigger macroeconomic clients cl- mm. clients climate that has contributed to this. But like you said, I think it's, it's hard because, um, you know, if you went out and raised at a $30 million va- valuation, you know, two years ago, now you're looking to raise more money. Your company can actually be doing much better than it was previously, but just because of the market conditions, like right. your valuation could be like very bad. Right. Totally. And that's kind of out of your control. Like that, that's mm-hmm. not your fault. It's just because of like the valuations aren't as high anymore. Right. So you're right. kind of then you're kind of like stuck in weird, like no person's land. So no, absolutely. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about kind of what the business and, and investment landscape is right now, because I, I know a lot of people have questions. There's so many kind of contrasting headlines coming out of the industry at all times right now. Yeah. Right. Um, what is kind of like your rational take on, on the state of the industry at this moment? Um, I think there just, there was a lot of overhype, um, that a lot of people got caught up in over the Mm -hmm. last few years that's starting to, to settle down. Um, Mm -hmm. I think is the big thing. I also think it's harder than ever to raise money on just an idea. And I, I see startups that have a deck with a product idea, um, but no proof of concept. And mm. like, unless you're a proven founder that's done this a couple of times, it, you, you can't raise off of just an idea or unless you have mm. like some secret that no one knows, right? Like right. you've right. decoded some crazy DNA gene sequence or something. But like, right. if it's kind of like a run of the mill type of idea, totally. if you don't have any indication of traction, it's just, it's almost near impossible um, mm. to raise. So, I um, mean, that's just getting harder because technology is getting cheaper. The the funding climate has changed. So that's right. probably a big thing. Um, and I do sort of by myself, but also on behalf of um, Patent 345, just some early stage investment too. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know what I've seen, you know, like the idea at the early stages almost doesn't matter. Mm. It's a really about the team right. and their ability to understand and test quickly and really mm-hmm. understand and validate the problem that they're solving. Because right. I know the idea is going to change million times as they go through the the startup journey um so i think also and this has always kind of been true but anchoring early on it's very about very much about the team mm-hmm. a lot of investors will say it is about the the tam the total addressable market because right. the returns need to be high enough but like i don't know you can kind of spin your idea to be in whatever market you want to be. like give me an idea right now mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like give me a random idea oh let's see here just like um, anything random right Let's say uh, uh, AI software for moms. Right. So like <laughs> to, to help them do what? Uh, shop more effectively. Okay. Right. So like if you were like really niche, 
like shop for grocery items, right? Mm-hmm. And then you're like, well, mm-hmm. that's not a big enough total addressable market. And it's like, well, right. what if we just did shopping, right? And then you can kind mm-hmm. of make that market much bigger, right? So yeah. it's attractive for investment, but. Mm-hmm. I see. Okay, gotcha. Makes sense. And, and so we've talked through kind of like for your vantage point as a founder, how to incorporate behavioral science into mm-hmm. kind of the product development process. How is that a factor in the way that you choose your investments and your bets? And, and um, I'd like yeah. to say yes, but okay. <laughs> the, the, like the beauty of behavioral science is that like we know these ideas, but we all fall prey to them. Right. Um, right. I would say my my experience in my uh, I would say so. What's interesting is I wouldn't say as much the behavioral science in helping me choose mm-hmm. investment opportunities, but the the ability to understand. When I'm on a pitch, mm-hmm. specifically if it's something behavioral related, right? So mm-hmm. a fintech company, a digital health company, an education company, yeah. um, is the team just building features and technology or do they actually understand the behaviors that they're trying to change? Mm. Right? So for example, back to the fintech savings retirement app that I was telling yeah. you about, if I got a pitch from somebody and they were like, we have this amazing onboarding experience where you can set your amount of monthly contribution. You can pick all your goals. Um, I would be okay. I'd be, I would I would take a second and be like, do they really understand like the underlying dynamics of how to change this behavior, right? And that's mm-hmm. an indication to me if it's. I mean, I don't know if this is a good investment thesis, but I'll see right. someday. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> does this make sense? That's something that could yeah. actually catch on. So. I see. So would you almost consider it like building on universal principles, right? Like a behavioral science, and correct me if if this is a mischaracterization, but is almost trying to get to fundamental realities about human decision making. So even if, right. So even if the problem applies to a different ICP or, you know, a a different person down the chain, it's still going to have this kind of universal tether to human decision making. Exactly. And like, I love the way that you frame that because everything is a human behavior problem. Mm. Some are bigger human behavior problems than others. Yeah. And sometimes what I see is companies that are addressing a human behavior problem, right? So let's say, for example, you're trying to build a technology that helps managers be better managers. Yeah. And they, they're throwing technology at it. At, mm. That's not a technology problem. That's right. a human behavior problem, mm. right? So like that framing for me helps me understand if they're just yeah. throwing technology and features at a human behavior problem, but don't mm. understand the behaviors they're trying to change. That for me is like really interesting looking product, but I'm mm-hmm. really curious if it's actually going to change the behaviors because it doesn't seem to really understand what behavior they're trying to change. I see. Got it. Got it. So even if it's, you know, if it's potentially framed in a way where, you know, people aren't doing this workflow, they aren't thinking about the problem this way. If you're tethered to that kind of that core problem that, you know, how do I make, how do I align my answer with the way that humans naturally think you're, Mm -hmm. it could still potentially be, you know, a success. Correct. Got it. Got it. Very cool. So Kind of extending that a bit, um, how do you think about behavioral science in the context of a product's go-to-market? Yeah, um, so, like defining your ICP scale is part of that, which mm-hmm. is, is your I, question I w- around. Yeah, so I think a little less on the ICP side, a little bit more on. So w- one problem that uh, that we're running into, kind of in the AI industry, right, is 
without saying AI on our homepage 57 times, <laughs> how do we... <laughs> AI, 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 AI. Exactly. Yeah. It's actually, it's a, it's a habit of mine to go onto AI uh, companies' websites and just command F, see how many times they say right, AI. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it's this problem of, I do think that there's some behavioral science, whether we think through it that way or not. And my answer to the problem is one that is not the way that people are thinking about it, but it's rooted in the science of simplistic human decision-making. So mm-hmm. how would you kind of apply that model to messaging would be my okay. question there. Can you, can you walk me through the example and then I'll try to riff on the yeah, example? Of yeah. So let's say, um, so let's say typically product managers are not the ones who are going in and finding problems in acquisition. Right. But I have built this tool that says a product manager is one who's going in and saying, who's our biggest lifetime value cohort. Right. Mm-hmm. How do I message to that person to say our product not only tells you LTV, but it also shows you the acquisition sources that have led to low or high LTV cohorts. OK, so my my question for you around this is mm-hmm. let's talk about in that instance, what's the acquisition channel? Yeah. So let's say you have, you probably have a couple, I hope, but like, what's this kind of one to focus on at least to begin with? Let's say search. Yeah. Okay. Um, And why does that product manager care about these metrics that you just stated? Right. So currently the model is they're looking at LTV to determine what features they should build, right? What, you know, what needs help? Is there some type of issue in the back end that's causing this feature to, to get, you know, low retention? What is kind of Mm -hmm. causing within the product? Um, this low LTV that I'm seeing from our recent users. And then why do they care about that? I would say in order to build a product kind of in the way that you modeled there, right? So not just Mm -hmm. a feature for the sake of a feature, but to actually kind of push the needle. Okay. And then why did I'm, I'm, this is, this is what I do. (laughs) So then why do they care about that? Yeah. Uh, because they only have limited time and limited resources, right? So okay. they don't, they can't afford to build into every space. They want to stay concentrated on on the people that they're providing the most value to, and they're wondering why aren't they retaining? Okay. So what I start to do, and we do this at Patent Three Five Five, and this isn't, I mean, this isn't like even pure behavioral science. It's just kind of like I would call it just, I don't know, strategy. Um, yeah. And we test actually a lot of these through cold email. And the reason that we do mm. that is because it helps us. It's like super quick feedback loops, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. I would start to map. You started to get to it in our conversation here. Like what is the actual pain that you're solving, mm. right? And you've got to remember, and I don't know what your sort of workflow is in terms of getting yeah. people into the product. But like if your goal is to get somebody on a demo call, like mm-hmm. that outreach message or the SEO, whatever the search is, like the, yeah. the goal isn't to sell your entire product. It's to spark enough interest to get them to the next step, Mm. right? So I would start to get to the pain you're solving, which is Mm. to get to it there and use that as the lead and the hook Mm. and then bring them through the flow and then eventually like introduce your solution to solve that problem. I see. Okay, got it. So it's working backwards. It's working backwards. And I think you have to also understand, I mean, there's some people that are going to be like typing in looking for like an right. AI blah, blah tool, right? Great. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Got him. Like most, a lot of people are just like, they have, the, and, and, and we do a lot of the qualitative research around this is really mm-hmm. understanding um, the 
problem that you're solving. I'll give you a perfect example. We have a client, mm-hmm. they built a a tool that helps communications directors at small nonprofits build mm. online annual reports, right? Okay. And one of the big problems that we found when we were doing our research is how much mm. time and money just creates the report, right? Mm. The tool had and is still positioned around this idea that you can digitize your annual report. You can okay. create it so it's interactive like a mini website, right? Right. That's the product, right? But mm. a lot of times the problem you're solving is actually saving them time, right? And money, so. I see. Okay, so then we might say, well, the reason that potentially the LTV here is low is because the people that you're capturing are just looking up, uh, maybe, I don't know, uh, something tangent to this problem, but they're not looking up the pain point, right? So they're coming in with a different expectation than what you're actually delivering. Right. So like in your example, and I don't know how this like kind of trickles out, but like one of the re- one of the problems that you could be solving with your your product could be like just feature bloat or like I have too many ideas in my product Mm -hmm. roadmap. Like Mm -hmm. how do I narrow those down? Oh, actually one of the ways you can narrow it down is like we have this product that helps you like do this, this, and this, and then you can figure out how to take your product roadmap from 20 features to three features. Right. 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 I like that. And if, you know, if, if speaking to that kind of entrepreneur who is in that spot where they're, they're a bit bloated, would you recommend that? (laughs) Would I recommend? Pair down you know, cut off all um, of the, the excess. Yeah. It depends where I am in the company, right? Like if I'm a product manager at a series A company, I've got very different problems in a series C company. Like right, if it's a B2B right. or B2C or whatever, right? So like, I think it's also becoming really clear on how your ICPs kind of segment out um, mm-hmm. because yeah, you know, like if I'm a product manager at a I don't know, series B or C company, like there's a good chance I don't actually even have insight into the entire end-to-end journey. Like I've only got like a piece of the funnel, right? Where like if I'm at a seed or series A company, I'm probably owning the entire, right? So that position is going to be very different because if you're like, hey, listen, Mm -hmm. we can help you with acquisition. I'm like, well, I just deal with retention. I don't even know what goes on in acquisition, right? So Makes sense. Makes sense. So so pivoting slightly, I'd love to get kind of your your takes on what the future looks like when it comes to behavioral science, how that's going to kind of guide the next generation of products and, and how you see that playing out. Yeah. Um, it's a really interesting question. I've thought a lot about it. I've written about it in my book. I think there's a couple different places. Um, everybody wants a silver bullet, right? And right. when behavioral science started to get a little bit popular, it became that silver bullet. And there, mm. there's, there's no such thing, right? So we're seeing right. actually right now a little bit of like a cool off, I think, in the behavioral science space of like, how great mm. it is. Um, okay. But I've always believed that behavioral science is about a decade behind where data science is, right? Okay. Um, in terms of people's uh, adaptation of the methodology, mm-hmm. which I think is still true. I think what's going to happen is it's going to follow a pretty similar trajectory as data science, where you start to have um, behavioral scientists that sort of specialize in different areas, I see. right? Applying behavioral science to organizational change management mm-hmm. versus user acquisition, like same underlying theories, but right. it's really different. It's kind right. of like a doctor, right? Being mm-hmm. a gastroenterologist versus a pediatrician, like yeah. you're both doctors, but like you need different training, right? Yeah. So you'll start to see, I think, some segmentation, not only by industry, but also by use cases. I, I see. Um, and then behavioral scientists um, starting to be able to upskill across different domains, right? Mm. So- 
I am a behavioral scientist with a strong like UI design background to begin to bridge those gaps where everything isn't so segmented is my guess. I see. Got it. Got it. So it's almost like, um, right. So I think uh, we're at least sniffing around kind of the same process in AI, right? Where it's instead of thinking of it as AI, the field, it's AI for this application, this application, this application, right? Right. So kind of the same thing there. And and then you don't have just, I mean, you don't just hire a data scientist, like you need data scientists, specific use cases. So you're starting to see the same thing is like, there are data scientists that specialize in natural language programming, you know, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, absolutely. So w- one final question for you. What is your, if you have one, your hot take kind of on the state of technology, the industry in general, behavioral science, AI, whatever you have your hottest take in? <laughs> I think AI, at least for the time being, is kind of, or we're in the situation right now. What's the saying, like the dog who caught its tail? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, is that the same? I think it is, right? I think so. Dog chasing its own tail, something like that. Yeah, they eventually caught... Yeah. No, the dog who caught the bus. That's the same. Oh, oh. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Um, it's a good thing I didn't get mixed up because <laughs> those are two very different concepts. Different ones, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, we, we've had been waiting for a while for this, like, mm. AI revolution, right? Yeah. And it's... I mean, you can argue if it has or hasn't come yet. But, like, something's right. come and everyone's right. really excited. And now we're in this place of, like, what do we, like, what do we actually do with it and how do we apply Mm. it in a way that's not just a shiny object but can actually help us do our day-to-day and i think that's a lot of what you'll start to see is you'll start to see companies um that are successful that really understand what i was talking about earlier is how do you take this technology and really understand the problem that you're solving you use the technology to help solve that problem versus just Mm. like throwing ai on anything that you can possibly find right right no, it's a fantastic point. I, I would definitely agree with that, right? And I think you see a lot of examples of, of those types of companies nowadays. Well, Nate, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for, for joining yeah. me. Um, is there anything else that you'd kind of like to, to talk about? or? No, I think for anyone listening, mom, um, <laughs> if you want, grab a copy of my book. It's on yeah. Amazon. Just type in Decoding the Why. And I'm on LinkedIn, so I don't know. I like to talk about this stuff. So if yeah. anyone wants to jam on anything, like I'm an open book, awesome. feel free to reach out. Awesome. It's just uh, Nate Andorsky on, on LinkedIn. And I can confirm you're a great follow. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks so much, Nate. Talk to you soon. Talk to you soon.